Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to our spiritual outpost here on the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. I am Hercules Invictus, and this is Mount Olympus. The word temenos means sacred space in Greek. It denotes a place that is more than a mere physical location, an area of interest that is special and set apart. Our Olympian temenos is dedicated to discovering and interacting with the many phenomenal manifestations of living mythology and its local parallels in our surrounding culture. Our ongoing mission is to explore, honor, and celebrate the mythical world around us with a special focus on non-traditional subcultures, folklore entities, fabulous beasts, haunted places, celestial chariots, other world encounters, magical and mystical personalities, unique establishments, and even living ancient traditions. Today, we have with us Laura Perry of Ariadne's tribe, and we're going to be exploring modern Minoan spirituality at at greater length. Laura's been a guest on our shows a few times. Uh, Greetings and welcome, Laura. How are you? Hi, I'm great. It's so good to be here. Good to talk to you. And great to have you here as well. I'm really looking forward to learning more about modern Minoan uh, spality. Uh, um, the past uh, few episodes have been uh, incredibly awesome and thought-provoking. Well, I'm glad. Um, I will be interested to uh, to find out what you wanted to know in particular, because you're the one who came up with this show topic. So okay. I'm wondering if you have... have <laughs> no, seriously. Um, I figured you probably had some questions or some some topics that you wanted to know about or at least to start with. I mean, I have pages and pages of notes, but I'm sure everyone would die of boredom um, no. if I just went through them. So, um, you wouldn't be on so frequently if I thought people were going to die of boredom <laughs> listening to the information <laughs> okay. that you have uh, to okay. share. Um, what what has been happening in uh, we we cover a wide range of uh, topics, including um, what uh, people call uh, like the UFO phenomenon, and this is actually right. something that's been going on since antiquity, uh, but we've understood it and described it in various uh, ways. And one of the things that's been popping up. Uh, um, from different people's research is kind of like the return of the space minoans. And that was very unanticipated um, for me um, with the Olympian uh, um, 
spirituality and the, the mythic systems. Uh, there's a lot of astro mythology, uh, everything from the days of the week and the Roman gods to the names of the constellations and, and so forth. Uh, so I was wondering if the same was true um, in Minoan spirituality as well in the in the universe that uh, um, exists uh, there because the massive collective consciousness of humanity uh, is bringing the Minoans back in this form. So I was wondering if that has very ancient roots or, or if this is just something uh, modern that is happening. So that, that's what inspired the topic. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, well, I'll be honest. I have no earthly idea what space Minoans are. This is new to okay. me. Um, <laughs> um, there are definitely um, celestial aspects to um, to ancient Minoan religion and culture. They were heavy-duty astronomers. They were very mm-hmm. good at it. Um, they watched the skies. They built their buildings to align to the risings and settings of the sun, the moon, the planets, the stars. Um, so, so the cosmos was definitely um, a driving factor in their religion, probably in their sacred calendar. Um, we don't know uh, if they associated specific deities um, with, with, for instance, the planets, the way the Romans did. Um, but, the uh, the the stuff that's moving around up there in the sky was definitely very important to them. So with the uh, Greeks too, um, the um, with the Olympian uh, mythology, uh, the, they they had different names uh, for the planets before they encountered the Babylonians. Uh, they borrowed uh, oh, okay. the equivalencies uh, of the planets uh, and the deities uh, from uh, Babylon. Before then, the names for the planets were like fiery or bright. You know, that's what they translated uh, into. So that entire um, uh, mythic uh, structure came from someone somewhere else. It was an import. And again, this is all around the Mediterranean uh, Sea. So there was a lot of... Uh, mingling of cultures uh, back then and, and today even. Uh, so, oh, yeah, definitely. Um, the stars, too, the constellations, they told stories, and people investigating those uh, stories uh, have uh, put forth a theory that's gaining more uh, more credence that the myths themselves contain uh, directions, <laughs> In addition to being uh, what's going on in the sky, the stories would tell you how to navigate from place uh, to place. Yeah, I've seen um, I've seen an analysis of the Odyssey uh, yes, as well essentially mm-hmm. a, a voyage like that. Um, we know that in the Bronze Age, people in the Mediterranean navigated by the stars. I mean, that's there is no argument about that. That's um, pretty clear. So. Um, it, it makes sense to me that they would have encoded at least some of that information in the stories they told, whether they were sacred stories or popular ones. Um, if, imagine, see, I live in near a, a large metropolitan area. There's a heck of a lot of light pollution. I haven't seen the Milky Way since I was a child. Um, wow. I can I can only imagine what the sky must have looked like back then compared to what it looks like now. 
it must have been absolutely overwhelming. That that's um, very true. Uh, I I live near and, New York City now, so I I know what you mean about the light pollution. Uh, but I've been yeah. to isolated places both in this country and in other countries, and uh, there the the sense of awe that you feel looking at the night sky in these places is is unbelievable. You can't not feel awe. Yeah, yeah, and just the amount of presence that that the stars would have had. And the planets and the moon um, is so different um, from, you know, we, we spend all of our time these days looking down instead of looking up, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and, and we have our clocks and things, so we don't even, we don't often don't even notice where the sun is during the day. Um, so there's a certain level of awareness that has gone away. Um, that I think probably colors the way we interpret information that we uh, are digging up from the ancient world. Because to them, you know, not only did the gods walk the earth, but um, everything in the sky was so much more present and so much more pertinent to their daily lives. Yes, that that is very uh, true. They did not live in the uh, the artificial systems of uh, thought that we uh, have mostly moved into. Uh, so much of our life is imagination that uh, if you spend some time contemplating it, uh, it it's a wonder we're living in uh, any type of uh, objective reality at all. Hey, who said we are? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> now, but, uh, anyway. Oh, go ahead. In um, in uh, um, th- there's a spiritual doctrine that uh, it's called ascensionism, and it's still around even today. And ancient Greece was called apotheosis. Um, and uh, you know, basically, the you go through experiences on Earth, which are uh, interpreted in various ways, uh, depending on which philosophical system or religious system or spiritual system you adhere to, and then you can rise above the human uh, condition and uh, rejoin the gods or join the gods or become a god, or and again, depending on what you happen to uh, believe. Um, but the ancients meant that very literally. Because the stars in the heavens often represented specific individuals, and the heavens were the firmaments; they were the night, you know, sky and, and the day sky. So, with the, it was very literal when they said someone was in heaven, because you could see the constellation there uh, looking at you. So. Right. A lot of the beliefs in antiquity that we still have today, um, they they have systems of thought built around them that reflect, uh, um, I guess, the evolution of thought. But to the ancients, part of it was very simple. You know, it, it was there. It was right in front of your eyes. Uh, you know, right. what we're seeing, and this communicated uh, directly uh, to you. And uh, the astral mythology, um, in addition to being used for navigation and being used for agriculture and for, you know, for a wide uh, variety of uh, reasons, um, also tied you, you know, to the cosmos uh, very yeah. intimately. And that was reflected in, 
um, the uh, belief systems uh, of, of the day, which again have evolved over time and no longer have that strong connection to what they originally uh, conveyed. Was that true during the, the Minoan period uh, as well? Well, we have to uh, do a lot of interpretation because we don't have text, uh, any kind of religious text from the Minoans. We don't have anything from, um, from before Homer, which is essentially the Bronze Age collapse era, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, minimum a couple centuries after the destruction of the Minoan cities. So we have to kind of look at the art and the architecture and do our best to interpret what we see there, recognizing that we have a modern worldview and we, we literally cannot be in these people's heads. We, we don't honestly know how they viewed the world. Um, I've always had the sense that there was a big shift in worldview during the Bronze Age collapse and that what came after was different. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just my opinion. That's just my opinion. Um, but what it looks like to me in the art is that... Um, the Minoans felt very much like the gods were present among them. Um, in, the, uh, in the gold seal rings, we find uh, these things that are called epiphany figures. They're these tiny little floating human figures. They're floating above the regular human figures in these ritual scenes. And we think those are the gods and the goddesses coming down to the people, um, transpossessing them perhaps. There's a fair amount of evidence that, that the Minoans used uh, transpossession and spirit work type practices. Um, so becoming, it, this, it's like the inverse of becoming a god. It's like the gods come down to you and you are their home or their vehicle for interacting with other human beings. Uh, in a sacred setting. That's a very interesting uh, observation, and that too uh, is uh, a living belief that has survived uh, the millennia. And uh, in the Afro-Caribbean cultures, uh, whose roots were in Africa, those type of beliefs are still alive and and can be experienced uh, uh, directly. Yeah, I, I suspect there are also places around the Mediterranean um, where that kind of thing still goes on. It's just um, done very privately because the last thing anybody at this point wants to do is to have it turn into a tourist attraction. Um, but yeah, um, it, it, it really, when I look at this art, I see ritual scenes in which the people are directly interacting with the deity. Um, and that feels so different from our modern world where even if we are, even if you're not Christian, the concept of deity being transcendent rather than imminent just permeates our Western culture. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's um, jarring to think about living in a world where Nobody would look at you funny if you came back from herding the goats one afternoon and said, oh, I met up with this particular god under an olive tree this afternoon. It's just, it's such a totally different mindset. 
It, that does still happen around the Mediterranean. Uh, one of the first things that I published, I, I started writing for uh, uh, paranormal anthologies a few years ago. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, one of the first stories I shared there were uh, in Limnos, which is uh, the island where my heritage is mostly focused on in the northeastern uh, Aegean. Um, mm-hmm. Since the time of my childhood, uh, from then until uh, when I was in my 30s, uh, which is the last time I went uh, to Limnos, uh, now I'm in my 60s, um, whenever I would climb this uh, mountain, and by mountain we mean a, a mountain in a Greek sense, these are really big hills, you know, I guess by uh, uh, <laughs> okay. American standards, uh, but there's, there are lots of shrines um, in, on the yeah. road. Yeah. On the side of the road, on the top of mountains, you know, there are shrines all over the place. And people go in there and you put some coins in there and you light a candle and pray or meditate or whatever you'd like to do. Uh, and there's one particular uh, shrine that whenever I visited it, whenever, every time I visited it by myself, um, th- there would be a woman dressed in white there. And she would always uh, call out to me by name. And she seemed to know everything about me and everything I was doing. And we'd have like these uh, long conversations. And uh, then uh, either I had to leave, you know, or she said she had to leave. Um, and it didn't occur to me uh, until after the leaving took place, like a second after I got up to leave and then a second after she left, that that was a very unusual thing. You know, where did this person come from? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm on the side of a mountain. There's no place to go. There's no place for her to run and hide behind anything because uh, uh, Greece is very barren. Even like wooded mountains are, you could see very far, you know, because the trees are not one on top of uh, another. They're they're fairly widely uh, uh, spaced and they're most like oak and olive and things like that. So um, she was um, um, there though every single time. She knew everything that I did in the intervening time since I got there. Uh, and, uh, um, oh, and she never changed. Her clothes never changed either. They're always like, a, I guess it kind of like a nun's clothing in a way, uh, but it was white. And, and this was a, a Christian shrine, but it wasn't, she didn't feel like a, a Christian personage. I don't know if I'm, uh, uh, explaining that uh, accurately, uh, but anyway, so th- I imagine that those type of things happened at these type of places in antiquity as well. Uh, so even though I was intending goats or cattle, uh, I'd be on a mountain, and I did have encounters with what, in later years, I assume was some sort of uh, deity. Yeah, well, those those shrines were probably built on top of those Christian shrines were probably built in the same places where pagan shrines had been, you know, sacred, sacred spaces, you know, maintain their sacredness over the generations, even when the trappings change. So, yeah, I can, I can totally imagine um, walking around the countryside uh, in Minoan Crete and seeing shrines all over the place, Um, shrines to, uh, specific gods or goddesses at their sacred sites, um, shrines to nature spirits. Um, it, yeah, it does, um, it does all seem to have been very present and not separate from everyday life. It was not 
religion was not something you did on a particular day or in a particular place. So that's, you know, that's very different. And that's very close to how I happen to view the the universe. You know, uh, uh, spirituality is not separate from life. It's it's part of life. It, yeah. it is life. And now you have um, taken a very ancient impulse, and you've uh, helped guide it into expression uh, here in our, our modern times. And you are phenomenally honest about uh, the, the sources, you know, what is and what isn't in the, in the sources. I remember during the early days of paganism, you know, very outrageous uh, claims were made about fam trads and, and things like that. Um, oh gosh. Yeah. Because well. I, yeah. I am Greek and we, we did have ancient uh, practices, uh, but they weren't fam trades. Just people were doing them because they'd always done them. And the church didn't condemn them, but people didn't really understand why they were doing them or what the stories were behind them. Uh, and they still held some old, uh, um, you know, concepts like whenever there was a thunderstorm, uh, uh, God was angry. You know, of course, it wasn't the New Testament right. God, the, the old God who, uh, whose anger could express itself in a uh, thunder and lightning storm. But it wasn't anything like w what was being described in uh, the pagan uh, literature of the day. So you've done a very great service th through your uh, honesty. And the, the gods of old have started expressing themselves uh, through this, you know, very powerfully from what you've shared uh, previously and also on uh, Thema Dugan's uh, um, show. And um, what, what I was talking about before with the space Minoans, when you were talking about the gods floating above people, um, mm -hmm. I, was, I was wondering if people's experience of the space Minoans was our modern interpretation of, of something like that, because the, uh, the Minoans are speaking to them uh, telepathically, you know, in, in, in astral uh, experiences, and they're seen as, uh, you know, like uh, floating uh, or being from the heavens. So I'm wondering if uh, uh, what you see on the artifacts that have been preserved and what these people are describing are, the, are similar phenomena. It's just that uh, back then they didn't have uh, UFOs, you know, whereas now we do. Or the, uh, as far as we know, they didn't have UFO uh, concept like we do now. Yeah, I've, I've often wondered if an awful lot of the sort of strange encounters that people have had in, um, in recent times are um, modern interpretations of the same stuff that's been going on for millennia. Um, you know, everything from, uh, you know, from visions to encounters with people who at first appear to be human and turn out not to be, um, experiences like you had at that shrine, um, if someone had no idea about the existence of paganism, as apparently an awful lot of people in the modern Western world do, um, and you and you had grown up in the modern Western world with um, a Christian or a secular background, and um, your worldview said that there was no such thing as gods and goddesses walking around among us, then you might immediately flip to some kind of uh, UFO or space alien 
narrative in your brain to try to explain um, an encounter like that. I mean, that that makes perfect sense to me. That, that makes sense uh, to, to me also. And uh, uh, lately, that seems to be a topic that people are uh, interested in. Uh, I, I've been on other shows, you know, talking about that. I've I've been asked to speak about it at, at, at workshops. And uh, um, I did in my own uh, quest find a lot of commonalities. Uh, uh, so right now I'm trying to organize them and uh, make some sort of more sense out of uh, uh, the data. But so much of, I, I think, uh, so much of what we um, describe about experiences that are uh, non-everyday uh, um, yeah. depend on our uh, belief uh, systems. And th- these interpretations vary from, uh, I'll give you a concrete example. Um, one of my lectures is about shadows. Living Shadows, mm-hmm. and the stories about the Living Shadows throughout the globe and throughout time are remarkably consistent. Uh, their okay. MO is remarkably consistent, but the stories about them are not remarkably consistent. So ah. they've been described as demons. They've been described as uh, succubi and incubi. Uh, they've been described as all sorts of elemental uh, creatures like uh, satyrs, for instance, and nymphs or poleti. Uh, they've been described as outer space aliens. They, they've been described. As, so there, there's all sorts of descriptions, jinn, and the descriptions explain them within a particular set of uh, beliefs. Right. But but the only thing that is the same is people's experience of this in their lives. And it's very common. Uh, and they, they're especially found near mountains. Um, and just about everywhere I've given a talk on this, there's at least one or two people in the audience that stick around afterwards and share their own experiences. So the phenomenon exists, and it's always existed, and it seems to be part of uh, the, the human uh, condition, and people have tried to explain it. But what people believe are the explanations which aren't necessarily true. So that experience with the, with the shadows, and yes, I too have experienced the shadows in my life, um, which is what got me interested in it. Uh, I try to apply that when I'm reading things about UFO encounters and about religious encounters, uh, uh, because again, I'm Mediterranean and people encounter saints even today, you know, all sorts of religious right. Right. are still encountered. Uh, and then with uh, getting to know folks in the whole UFO culture, um, if you ignore the interpretation and focus on what are people actually experiencing Again, there's remarkable consistency, but the explanation, instead of clarifying things, makes it more difficult. <laughs> it, it blocks you from seeing what it is uh, you're looking at. Well, our our modern world does not, most of our modern world, I I shouldn't generalize like that. Modern Western culture, at any rate, which is what I'm most familiar with, um, really doesn't have any kind of framework for interpreting those kinds of experiences, right? Because, right. you know, it's that you, you get 
even even within a uh, even within a Christian framework, quite quite often you get a very materialist mindset, which says that if a person's standing in front of you, they must be a physical material person of some sort. So they must have come here in a spacecraft, right? Because that's the only way a physical material person could could show up next to a shrine on a mountaintop. Um, so yeah, we we have um, I think an innate desire to to understand why things happen around us. We need explanations, um, and if the culture that we grew up in does not provide um, the framework for ready explanations for that sort of thing, then uh, people take whatever information they do have and do their best to explain these kinds of experiences. That That's very true. And we, we do still have uh, these uh, um, experiences. There's uh, another example. Um, we live in New Jersey, and we've lived in New Jersey for a chunk of years at this point. Uh, and one of the places we lived was in northwestern New Jersey. And there's a road there, a Clinton Road, I believe uh, it's called, where people have a lot of different experiences. And in ancient times, it would have been uh, the explanation would have been that there's an entrance to the underworld. Explain the, the right. types of experiences that people have there. Um, and again, there's everything from like dogs with glowing eyes to all sorts of ghost uh, phenomenon. Uh, and uh, um, so we don't believe in that. So there isn't a, an entrance to the underworld there, but people still continue to have experiences on that road. So it's very fascinating. And in reading their explanations, because here in New Jersey, we have a magazine called Weird New Jersey that collects all these stories and puts them uh, out. So uh, they're more accessible uh-huh. than in many uh, uh, places. And the explanations are so different. But the, the, the stories, again, are remarkably consistent in what people are experiencing. Well, and because we don't have that framework, because it's not part of our worldview, um, I, don't, I don't even think the term religion applies here because there's this whole worldview that says that that the gods are here uh, among us and that there are indeed entrances to the underworld in various places. Because we don't have that worldview, we don't know what to do with these things. So, for instance, if someone discovered uh, an entrance to the underworld in ancient Crete, they would uh, run back and get their friends to help them build a shrine there and make yeah. an appropriate offering so that, it, so that that area would be properly respected and honored and appeased and it wouldn't cause problems for people. And um, you try doing that these days and people think you're nuts. Yes. But you know, um, there there needs to be uh, a certain level of uh, open mindedness. Maybe, I mean, if if you're going to talk about cryptids, how is that less crazy than talking about the underworld? So, um, I I come at religion from a fairly 
uh, functional point of view, I guess, which mm-hmm. is if it works, do it. Um, and so, no, seriously, I mean, oh, that's that's if, it works, if it works, that's do it. It's a very healthy um, way of looking at religion. I mean, that's that's how we've developed an awful lot of our practices in modern Minoan paganism. You get you get an object knocked out of your hand by an invisible force in ritual enough times, you will stop using that object that way in ritual. Um, and so, you know, we pay attention, we listen um, to the editorial comments, <laughs> and uh, and so yeah, if um, if you see something like that and you, you would interpret it as an entrance to the underworld, you have a framework, uh, a worldview that gives you a way to deal with it, a way to interact with it safely, a way to handle the situation. And I think um, above all else, that's what um, certain aspects of ancient religion did for people is give them the answer book, what to do when this happens. Not, oh, it didn't happen, or oh, you imagined it, or uh, we don't talk about those things here. But, oh, this happened, okay, here's what you do. And that that, that strikes uh, me as just a, a more practical and less judgmental kind of way to go about things. That's very true. When I was growing up and uh, spent time in Greece, uh, when people were dying, uh, there was uh, a belief that, uh, um, yeah, like it, and it's very ancient, that uh, basically somebody would come and get you. And for most uh, people in, in the Greece of that time, when I was growing up, it was a bird. A big bird would come to get you. Uh, but okay. sometimes... Um, Charos would come, and Charos is uh, the modern equivalent of Charon, who was the ferryman uh, of the sticks in antiquity, uh, and right. also Thanatos, uh, who is the titan of uh, death. He would come uh, to get you, uh, just yeah, like he in is antiquity. death embodied. <laughs> yes, he he might come he, get he's you. He's not he's not just the titan of death; he is death. Yes, and so the people understood that. And uh, there wasn't, uh, as far as I can recall, an entrance to the underworld on uh, Limnos. So you had to be taken to the underworld by somebody. But in places that had an entrance to the underworld, if nobody came to get you, you would just make your way toward the nearest entrance uh, uh, to the underworld. And that was uh, understood. Right. So you already had your set of instructions. Yes. That certainly makes it a lot easier for all the psychopomps who don't have to spend all their time rounding up the confused uh, spirits of the dead and taking them to where they need to go. And that, too, that practice, a lot of people who are called uh, pagans uh, these days do that. I remember uh, several times during uh, the COVID uh, pandemic that we still find ourselves in being invited to help with that. So that that is something that is very needed. Uh, a lot of people are going and uh, they don't know where to go. Yeah, yeah, I uh, that is part of my personal spirit work practice as well. Um, I even edited an anthology about it. Oh wow! It's called yeah, it's called Death Walking. Um, 
So psychopomp work is is the more formal term for it, but death walking is what it's called in a number of different places. Um, and I'm sure there were people um, who did exactly that sort of thing in ancient Crete, um, all over the Eastern Mediterranean. In fact, we have these um, beautiful marble cycladic figurines. Are you familiar with cycladic art? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it looks, for, to our eyes, it looks almost modern. Um, the sculptor Henry Moore was actually inspired by cycladic art to develop his style. Um, but there's a particular variety of these figurines. They're carved out of white marble, and then they were coated with red pigment. Mm-hmm. And th- they're usually displayed standing upright in museums so that you can get a good look at them. But they were always found lying down in the graves next to the deceased. And because of the way they're carved, um, archaeologists think that they were meant to uh, meant to represent very specific local spirit workers. Um, so you would have a little effigy of the local psychopomp in your grave with you so that after you were buried, you would have someone to take you to the underworld, someone who knew what they were doing. So oh, that wow. was, um, yeah, that was very much a part of, of the culture. And there have been, um, the they were made out of white marble that was uh, quarried on uh, Milos, I think, uh, and a couple other places. Um, and then they were carved in workshops, um, a workshop has been found in Akrotiri, uh, where they made them, and, and, and on other islands around the eastern Mediterranean. But it was um, it, it was a major aspect of uh, of I guess you uh, call it funeral furnishings. Um, mm-hmm. A major aspect of funeral practices um, in the early Bronze Age, and then back uh, briefly into the Neolithic as well. I have to look into that. That sounds uh, extremely fascinating. And uh, as I've always helped out with uh, the transitions uh, uh, for much of my life, uh, it'll expand my understanding. So uh, is your anthology available on Amazon or how can somebody uh, get a copy of the anthology? Uh, It is. It's called uh, Death Walking, Helping Them Cross the Bridge, published by Moon Books. And um, it is... It is not an instruction book for how to be a psychopomp. Um, that is one of the things that uh, that I wanted to avoid um, because getting into that kind of spirit work, if you don't have the training or you don't have someone with you who knows what they're doing, can be very uh, problematic. Um, so it's more like an exploration of a number of different uh, traditions of psychopomp work and how the people uh, ha- how the people go about the process and what it means um, to them. And then there are um, some uh, lists and and links to places where you can get um, that kind of training if it's something you're interested in doing um, more seriously. And I hope a lot of people are because caring for the dead is something that has not been done consistently in the West for centuries. 
and we really need to be more respectful of them and and care for them the way they have been used to since the beginning of humankind. Found uh, because uh, again, uh, our culture does not have a uh, um, uh, a set of uh, beliefs that are helpful in guiding somebody when uh, they pass. Uh, but with the advent of uh, entertainment and uh, um, mass uh, communication, uh, there are some uh, beliefs that have emerged, like going into the light and being met mm-hmm. by light beings who are giving off uh, love vibes and things like that. And I found that uh, uh, using those is uh, you know, very effective. Uh, and also letting people know that that it's okay and they can they can the, that everything will be okay just to let go. Yeah. Yeah, I mean basically that's what any psychopomp does is just helps the person realize that they're dead and and helps them figure out where they need to go. Um, the real danger lies in not protecting yourself properly. Um, because it's just like, you know, walking into a crowd somewhere with people you don't know and then yes. interacting with any of them without knowing, you know, whether they have a contagious disease or a murderous streak or whatever. Um, so, you know, the main, the main issue is protecting yourself. Um, Very if true. You're going to, if, if you're going to do this kind of work, then you should take it seriously enough to make sure that you can be safe so that you can continue doing the work. That is, that is very true. And uh, uh, you bring up a point. I, I know we're, we've, we've gotten off topic a little bit, but it's, it's very important that this be known, especially now uh, during the pandemic, that uh, um, a lot of spiritual uh, traditions are very trusting and I'm a very optimistic yeah. person generally, uh, but uh, you learn if you do any type of spirit work over time that things are not always what they appear to be. Yeah, um, and you can't trust everything right. that every being says to you. No, or, or what the, the appearance that a being will give. Uh, and right. like, we have a cat. And the cat's name is Ghost because we had the cat as a ghost before it got born into a litter of kittens that uh, one of our cats oh, wow. had. And That's wild. Yeah. She's uh, sometimes, uh, uh, what do you call it? I tell her I know why, how she wound up as a ghost because she, she can be very annoying. But she never had a kittenhood. She always behaved like an adult cat. And oh, wow. um she and I, I named her Ghost when she was a ghost. And I'd say, hey, Ghost. And then uh, before she learned how to walk, she tried to make her way over uh, to me. But um, um, it took years before I would accept her as a ghost uh, cat because uh, the cat was something that people would perceive when they would come to our house. And we have living cats also. And they'd always ask about the gray Siamese. And we had no gray Siamese. That was the ghost. So she'd make her <laughs> oh, look wow. very uh, solid. You could feel her like run, rubbing against your leg. And she'd like run past you. And then uh, this is eerie. You could hear her like crunching cat food, <laughs> the hard cat food at night, you know. And uh, she, you, you, she, so she made herself very felt. But I knew that just because it looks like a cat and behaves like a cat, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a cat. So it took a long time 
for me to you know, basically accept her as a, as a ghost uh, cat because I know that spirits can appear in different guises and it's very easy to be fooled, um, especially if you have some preconceived notions uh, you know, about uh, spirits that are not grounded in reality. And as you pointed out, you know, um, if you go into a crowd of people to do like uh, social work of any uh, type, you don't know the people that you're helping. You know, you're giving out sandwiches or doing whatever you're doing, but somebody there could be a rapist or a murderer. You know, uh, you, you don't know. So you need to be, be able to protect yourself. You need to be able to have some uh, uh, discernment and to remain guarded and cautious, uh, you know, even when you're being uh, giving of energies and and. In- you know, basically trying to establish some sort of direction. And that needs to be said. So thank you for getting that out in the world. Okay. You're welcome. Um, and I would like to point out that it's not necessarily that that every spirit that you encounter is evil. Um, right. Just, just, like, just like the ordinary people that we know who are decent people can still hurt us in various ways, even sometimes when they don't mean to. The same kind of thing happens with the spirits of the dead. So it's not necessarily that they're malicious or malevolent. They're just human. Very, very true. And if so, you do this Yeah, before, we've, we've gotten way um, off topic. But <laughs> it's okay. But these things were done in antiquity, and they're still being done yes, now. Yes. In that sense, uh, no, we haven't. And, and again, we are living during a pandemic, and a lot of people are trying to help out in different ways. So, uh, you know, we're able to share uh, uh, not only the wisdom of the ancients, but our own uh, personal wisdom that we've gathered by doing this. Yeah, yeah, psychopomp work is definitely um, high on the priority list these days um, with, you know, huge numbers of people dying and no one to care for the dead. So, yeah, that's, it's, it's a lot of work. There are a lot of us doing it, but there need to be more. There, there, there needs to be more. Do you see, like, a program eventually being created uh, to train uh, people or are there such things uh, now? I know you said you, you point to resources, but I really haven't looked into this, so I don't know what's out there. Um, there are teachers. Um, most of them uh, uh, hang out a shingle as something along the lines of a shamanic practitioner. Um, okay. Personally, I, I personally, I prefer the term spirit worker because it doesn't, um, use terms that still belong to living indigenous traditions. But um, yeah, there are, there are uh, people out there who do that kind of training. Um, essentially anyone who wants to do psychopomp work needs to do basic spirit work training and then um, a little bit of extra uh, to, to be able to, to do it safely Um in the anthology that I edited, um, my chapter is the last chapter, and it's called the "How Not to Do It" chapter. <laughs> um, you know, well, you you know, you you hear these jokes about people people saying, "Oh, you keep doing that, and I'm going to put you in my book in the chapter about how not to do it." Well, uh-huh. I I did the "How Not to Do It" because um, beginning as a child, I did psychopomp work. Um, not really understanding what it was or what the dangers were. And by the time I discovered the pagan community and began to take some real training, 
I had a lot of um, energetic crud hanging around me that needed to be cleaned off in a pretty major way because I had been wide open, you know, happy, loving right. person that I was. I just, I just wanted all these people, you know, to, to find their way safely to the afterlife. And so I was wide open all that time and zero protection. And uh, so, yeah, naive. Um, and they can attach to you too, and uh, you won't even know it. Yes, uh, yes. Although sometimes you find yourself like talking, and you you, you ask yourself, who am I talking? Who am I talking to? Some part of me is communicating with something, you know. But uh, uh, and uh, yes, I, I had to learn the hard way uh, also. So I'm just I'm I'm hoping that other people can segue into doing this very vital work um, in a safer and less um, exciting <laughs> manner because the work is exciting enough yes. on its own in, in the very basic way without having extra challenges on top of that. And uh, I was a human service worker in, in this lifetime uh, several times. And I, I, I was even like on a, a suicide hotline with a beeper and, you know, uh, when you do spirit work, it's the same thing, except there's no electronic devices. Uh, but once uh, it becomes apparent that you can see or perceive in some way uh, those who have passed and that you can communicate with them, you will attract lots of uh, uh, entities who want to communicate. Yeah. Yeah, because you listen. Yes. One, and you respond. Yeah, one of the um, – I, I hope she's not listening. One of the stories uh, that I told in the anthology um, is that my um, my aunt died. Um, it's been a number of years ago now. And um, she – several days after she died, she appeared. I was uh, sitting in my office working uh, one evening, and she just showed up. And I was more than a little surprised. And she told me that she had um, tried to, her daughter, my cousin, um, had called her name repeatedly. And my cousin had talked herself into uh, believing that she was imagining it because she missed her mom. And mm. then um, and then my aunt began shouting at her, listen to me, listen to me, over and over again. And apparently my cousin continued to tell herself that she was just imagining it because her worldview would not allow for the spirit of her dead mother to be communicating with her. And so not knowing what else to do, my aunt came to me um, for help because she was lost. She was, um, I guess, verging on fundamentalist Christian. And she she literally thought she had gone to hell because after she died, she was in a place that was not um, streets paved with gold and marble everywhere and angels playing harps. So this is this is what modern religion does to people. And so I had to explain to her that she was just fine and she hadn't gotten to the afterlife yet and then call on some other relatives who had passed on earlier to help mm-hmm. her, um, to, to get her to, um, she trusted them. And so, um, to, to get her where she needed to go. But 
Yeah, um, even within the pagan community, there are a lot of people who are not comfortable with the idea that the living and the dead can communicate. Um, It's definitely not a typical part of the modern Western worldview. So um, it's it's not something that everyone's interested in. Um, It's not something that everyone's cut out for. And um, but it's still very important. Um, you know, this is how we, this is how we take care of our ancestors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the ancestors are the ones who support the living. Very, very so true. It is, it is vital and worthwhile work. And uh, today, unfortunately, we've reached the end of our uh, time uh, for our conversation, but you've opened up so many new doors. <laughs> and uh, again, you've amazed me even further uh, with uh, the things that you're doing and that you're involved with it. Uh, you'll definitely be invited back uh, so we can explore these other uh, topics. Can you share with people how they can get in contact with you and uh, um, how they can access your writings and your activities? Uh, okay, well, let me start with modern Minoan paganism. Um, our website is Ariadne's tribe.wordpress.com. That's the goddess Ariadne, um, and we are her tribe. So uh, that's the modern Minoan paganism website. Uh, you can find me on my website, my books, um, tarot, my Minoan tarot deck, all that other kind of stuff at lauraperryauthor.com. Um, and uh, Ariadne's Tribe is our modern Minoan paganism discussion group on Facebook. So that's me. Thank you so very much. And uh, you've given me much to uh, think about and much to explore. And it's always great to talk to another person engaged in the same type of uh, life work or death work. (laughs) Because uh, not, not that many people I know do that. So it's not something I talk about very often. It does tend to kind of make people back away slowly (laughs) if it's not their thing. But but it is necessary. And if people weren't doing it, uh, the amount of uh, fear and oppression and uh, would dramatically uh, increase uh, uh, past the the point where it currently is. So it's, it's definitely much needed. Yeah. Well, if we don't get to talk before the holidays, happy holiday season uh, and a blessed new year to you and yours. Thanks again, Laura, for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And thanks to everybody who's joined us from home, whether you're listening live or later on tuning in on demand. Until next time, this is us wishing you joyous journeys and amazing adventures. We're going to close with Evolve by Bone Poets Orchestra.